The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. You can have a seat. We can only sing that, and we can only invite God to have his way if he is a God that we trust. And our God is completely trustworthy, and he shows that to us again and again and again. Praise God for who he is and all the things that he has done for us. Uh, welcome here, everyone, for those of you who are here in person, for those who have joined us at home. Uh, welcome. We're glad that you're, you're here. We can gather together in this way. Uh, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here at White Ridge, and we're just glad that we can worship with you together. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, for those of you who are new, uh, we want to especially extend a welcome to you. Uh, if you are new here this morning, we'd love to hear from you, and we definitely want to connect with you after the fact as well. Uh, so if you're here today, uh, you'll find in the, in the back of the chair in front of you a welcome card, and if you would fill that out and let us know who you are, uh, and then you can leave that card in our offering baskets, which you can find at the back of the room in a couple different places. Uh, and for those of you who are online, if you're new, we're glad that you found us, and all you have to do is just go to our church website, and at the very top of our church website, there's a place where you can click and also fill out an online welcome card, and we would love to hear from you, and it would be great to be able to connect with you. Amen. Uh, this morning, I spent some time in the Word of God. I was praying for our church, for Kevin, for Terry. And Kevin, I believe this is a verse that the Lord has for you. It's Psalm 28, verse 7. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts. So I am helped and my heart exalts. And with my song, I will give thanks to him. And uh, that's what God wants for all of us, that we put our trust and our hope in him by keeping our eyes on him, by acknowledging him in everything. So with that, let's pray together for Kevin, for us, and just to praise God. Lord, we thank you that you are completely faithful and good. You are our loving Father. We are your precious children. And you have nothing but good desires for us to enjoy you forever with each other. And so, Lord, we thank you that in both our pleasant and our hard times, your desire is for us to abide with you together. And so, Lord, we bring Kevin to you right now. We thank you so much for the gifts you've given him in his character, not just his voice, but there's so much about him that reflects you to us so regularly. We ask for your blessing on his body, on his vocal cords. We thank you for the music that you've put in his life that can't be stopped, even with his vocal cords not working. And we ask for your healing hand upon him. But most of all, Lord, we thank you for his heart to say, Lord, may your will be done. And that's what we say, Lord. May your will be done in Kevin and in each of our lives. Help us to accept whatever lot you've given us as long as our eyes get fixed on you and we know the next steps to take. Thank you that you promised to give us wisdom. And I thank you for the doctors that are already going to look at Kevin. And we just pray for... Uh, help in these coming weeks. And right now, Lord, we just fix our eyes on you and we praise you again, regardless of our state. We thank you for who we are in you and we thank you for the glorious future in front of us and we thank you for the wonderful presence of your Holy Spirit in us now. We love you and we thank you so much that you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one, of the, uh, one of the special times in church family life is when we get to have a baby dedication 
time together. And what that is, it's, it's an opportunity for, for parents to, to, to bring their babies forward and for, for them to uh, in, invite us to pray with them uh, as they dedicate themselves as parents and their children as well to the glory of God. And uh, this morning, we've, we've got eight families that are going to be coming forward. There's been lots of babies born during, during COVID uh, that we weren't able to, to really do this for. And there's actually quite a few more families yet who aren't able to be here today, and we're going to be doing this again. Uh, but for right now, I'm going to invite families forward. I'm going to uh, read their names to all of you so you know them. And then uh, Terry's going to lead us in a time of, of dedication. So why don't you guys, you don't have to wait for your name. You can just kind of come on, come on forward. Uh, Yvonne and Andrea Garcia are bringing forward their, their son, Raphael, born July 7th, 2021, and also their older son, Matthias, uh, Brent and Tara Harder, uh, and their daughter, Kenzie, born December 14th, 2020, Stephen and Lisa Mendes, and their daughter, Aurelia, born August 26th, 2021, uh, Dotimi and Francis Omotorura, uh, Miebe and their son Tamaprede, born October 22nd, 2020. Dylan and Andrea Renz and their daughter Kinsley, born on May 1st, 2020. Sean and Stephanie Wajasing and their son Aiden, born August 10th, 2020. Uh, ben and Stephanie Wiltshire and their daughter Erin, uh, born February 14th, 2020, and also their sons, who they also haven't brought forward yet uh, and are here today, uh, Eli and Theo. And then Adam and Johanna Jorgensen and their little girl, who we're not going to be able to show on camera today because of, of uh, uh, foster care uh, issues, uh, but she is cute as a button. You can take my word for it. And that's everybody. Welcome, welcome. <laughs> this is so... <laughs> oh man, I'm going to cry before we even start here. This is awesome. What a, babies are such a great way to start humans, isn't it? I mean, just what a great idea God had. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Welcome all of you parents and all the families as well. I just want to uh, pray that God would bless. What an occasion of joy today we have as parents bring their children and as they dedicate themselves to the, the task of nurturing and disciplining them in the Lord. And that's why we call it a parent-child dedication, because you're, you're dedicating your children and you're dedicating yourself. In fact, there's really four levels of this morning, as you're going to see. We're, we're finding that uh, parents are prayerfully presenting their children uh, to the Lord this morning. And uh, they're presenting themselves to the Lord this morning in, in, uh, in this. And then we're presenting grandparents and family members are present. We're going to ask them to be part of it. And then, of course, our entire church family and congregation. We see various examples in Scripture where God has children brought before the Lord. Hannah, in uh, bringing Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 1, it says, For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition. In Deuteronomy, God's word says, raise your children up, and Moses tells them, impress these things on them as you do so, as you sit at home, as you walk by the way, as you lie down. And a survey, I knew this was going to happen, by the way, there's all kinds of potential for chaos today. <laughs> a survey said that above 250,000 um, teens that were walking with the Lord that were interviewed 
the number one impact in their lives were mom and dad. And mom and dad were two or three times more important than any other factor, including peers and church programs. And so today we're just joyful that we get to bring these children and these parents before the Lord. When Jesus was brought children, he lifted them up and blessed them and put them in his arms. Unfortunately, we pastors can't do that today. We'd love to be holding each of these children and blessing them, but we can't. And so, parents, I'm going to address you first. I'm going to ask that uh, as God has entrusted these little ones into your care, I'm going to ask you four questions and just ask you to respond in kind. Parents, do you present your children to the Lord this morning in the grateful response of gratitude for the precious gift that God has entrusted into your care? If so, you, if so would you respond by saying, we do? We Amen. And do you commit yourselves to the task of loving, nurturing, and disciplining them into maturity? If so, would you respond by saying, yes, we do? And do you acknowledge the dependency you have on God to have humility in your hearts, love in your marriage, and wisdom in your parenting? If so, would you respond by saying, we do? And finally, will you, by prayer and the example you set, point this child to their creator and redeemer in the hope that they will come to faith in him as you have? If so, would you respond by saying, we will? Amen. I ask you extended family members, grandparents, uncles and aunts, and, and any other kind of relation, would you stand now as a sign of your support for these children and these parents? And I would ask you to respond as well. Do you, family members of these children and parents, do you accept the responsibility of assisting these parents in loving, protecting, and teaching these children unto maturity? If so, would you respond by saying, we do the Lord being our helper? Amen. And now, congregation of White Ridge Baptist Church, would you stand with us together? And you, as you have opportunity to be a lifelong support to these parents and these children in nurturing and equipping them, will you, through the friendships, ministries, and programs that we have, pledge your support and love to these parents? If so, would you respond by saying, we will, the Lord being our helper? Amen. And let us pray now together. Let us pray. O oh God of our mothers and fathers, we come to you and we thank you for the gift of children. And O oh Father, for these children that are being presented this morning, for the privilege of shaping and guiding their lives after your image, Lord Jesus. And we pray for these parents. In the name of Jesus, we pray, may you give them grace, patience, and strength for the resolve that they will need in each season of life as parents. Protect their marriages with an ironclad bond of love. Let them grow in their faith in you as father, even as they experience what it means for them to be parents, mothers and fathers, to give them humility, Lord, for even the lessons that their children will teach them. May they find joy in the journey and superabundant grace from you so that they may guide their children safely through the troubled waters of this world and this life to the other side where our hope lies in you and with you, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray for ourselves as well as family members and church family. May we, O oh God, live up to the responsibility of being for these parents all that you call us to be to support these children as they grow in faith and life. Help us to know how to come alongside of them, to lift them up, 
and we pledge ourselves, O God, this day to care for these families, and we pray for your peace and your mercy to always be upon them, and we pray in the strong and glorious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen, amen. Thank you so much, parents. God bless you all. I wish I could hold all of your babies. <laughs> amen. Chip Ingram is a good teacher, and he's written a great book called True Spirituality. We're not going to be reading the book together as a congregation, although you're welcome to order it and read it. We're going to be looking and watching the, the contents of the book in a video series that he has produced, and we're going to watch it through Right Now Media. And uh, we're going to be doing that between now and Easter in the following weeks, and we're encouraging you to join us in this journey. Join us today. Join us by signing up. Uh, you will see on the registration form, if you go to our webpage, you've maybe already seen it sent to you by text or by email or in our newsletter sent Thursdays. Um, but uh, if you fill out that registration form, you'll see there's various ways you can join us on the journey. You can join on Zoom on this coming Wednesday. We're going to be starting on Zoom, and we break out rooms. We'll study together. We're going to be joining in homes. Various people have, are going to be hosts and, and have in homes. And you can study in your own family. All of that is explained in the registration form. And we're encouraging you to fill it out as soon as possible. In fact, today uh, we encourage you to fill it out uh, following the service or by this evening. And tomorrow, uh, Doug, Pastor Doug will be sending you an email if you filled out the registration. And he'll be telling you further instruction as to the group that you'll be in and how you'll be studying together. Whether it's on Zoom or in homes or in your families or privately. And so um, we're going to continue on with Romans 12, like I said, between now and Easter. Asking God, how do you become a Romans 12 Christian? That's what God is teaching us. We've been in it for a few weeks already, and we're going to carry on today in Romans chapter 12. How do we become a Romans 12 Christian? This morning, what I'd like to do is I'd, I'd like to go through the first eight verses of Romans 12, and I would like to try and show to you the seamlessness of what Paul's argumentation and Paul's logic is as he unpacks the first eight verses. And the first thing I'd like to start with is just describing, as we've talked about in the last few weeks, I'd like to describe to you how God views our relationship to him as Christians. And he uses the, the language of being a living sacrifice. I urge you, therefore, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Which is, of course, you know it, it's a contradiction of terms. Because the very idea of a sacrifice that is borrowed from Old Testament times is that the animal that was being offered as a sacrifice had to be killed. So the idea of a living sacrifice is a, is a contradiction in terms. But Paul employs that and he says, I want you to now offer your lives, your bodies, as living sacrifices. What a picture this is. It's a picture that every person that Paul was writing the letter of Romans to would have understood completely. It was a picture that they would have understood. And uh, it was all coming out of the law of Moses. A family would go to their flock and they would choose a lamb. And they would take that lamb to the tabernacle or the temple, and they would offer that little animal to be as a sacrifice. And they would place their hands on that little animal's head, and then they would slit its throat, and it would bleed out. The blood would be poured out. 
And then they would give that to the priest, and he would dress the animal and burn on the altar either all the animal, depending on the kind of sacrifice it was, or only the insides, and they would be allowed to eat some of the meat. Now, what an incredible graphic picture Paul is giving us here, one that every person in the church would understand. It was a burnt offering. That means that it was, it was burnt up. The idea, that word means ascend, like smoke ascends from a fire. It was a burnt offering. It went up to the Lord, and it was a pleasing aroma. Why? Why such graphic language? Why was an, an animal sacrifice necessary? Why did blood have to be spilled? It's because God takes sin so seriously. You see, it's a picture of how seriously God takes sin because every time that family would choose an animal from their flock and go to the tabernacle and the temple and, and sacrifice that little lamb, it was a substitute for them. It was dying in place of them. And every animal that was ever sacrificed was pointing forward to, the, to the Jesus, the Lamb of God, that would take away the sin of the world. Every one of them was a foreshadowing of Jesus who would be the once-for-all sacrifice that would offer himself for sinners like you and I. And so it's an incredible graphic picture that is given here. Jesus then on the cross, a burnt offering, though it was no fire, the picture of Jesus offering himself completely in his life and then ascending to God, like smoke ascends in the burnt offering, and ascending to God. And even his outer carcass, the outer carcass of, of the animals in burnt offerings was offered to the priest, and they would, they would make a living with those. And Jesus, his outer garment was, was gambled away at the cross. What a picture we have. And Paul is using that imagery, and he's saying, offer your lives as living sacrifices. Notice the words that Paul uses in verse 1 of Romans 12. He says there's two, two conditions to this sacrifice. It needs to be holy, and it needs to be acceptable. Now the word holy is a very simple word that means it's set apart. If someone took a, a cup or a dish to the temple and it was set apart holy for holy purposes in the temple, it couldn't be taken home by a priest and used in any other capacity. And God says, you people of God, I have saved you and I've set you apart. You're holy for my purposes. And then that word acceptable is, again, going back to the Old Testament, a, a lamb from the flock had to be acceptable. It had to be a yearling that was without defect, acceptable. You didn't offer your worst of your flock to God, and neither would you offer the worst of yourselves to God as a living sacrifice. You don't give God the worst of your time, the worst of your energy, the worst of your money, or the leftovers. You give God your best. Why? Because you're responding, like Paul says in verse 1, in view of God's mercy. You're responding, you're saying, God, I want to give you my best. I want to give you my life. It was a incredible picture that Paul makes. In fact, this is not the only time that Paul uses the idea of a living sacrifice. In two other places, he uses a similar idea using different language. For example, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 17, he says, even if I am being poured out 
as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice. Now, the picture of a drink offering is different than a burnt offering. The drink offering was usually wine, and it was replacing the pagan practice of blood in the human sacrifices that pagans practiced before Abraham. And so here is this incredible picture of wine being poured out. And Paul, some people think that Paul used this idea of himself as a drink offering being poured out because he knew in his mind the kind of death that would come to him. That as a Roman citizen, he would not be crucified like Jesus, his Lord. They didn't crucify Roman citizens. They would behead Roman citizens. And when a person was beheaded, their blood poured out. I know this is graphic language, but Paul is leveraging this language because in the first century church that he's writing to, everybody knew about crucifixions, everybody knew about beheadings, everybody knew about these kinds of offerings and sacrifices. And Paul is saying, I'm being poured out right now for you Philippians. Later on, five years later, he's going to write his last letter, Paul, the apostle, He's writing his final letter. He's just ready to die. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And what does he say in 2 Timothy 4, 6? He says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul is just describing how he's going to finish. And he's saying, can you picture this? This is the living sacrifice picture. Can you picture your life? And God has a hold of your life. He's got the picture. And he's pouring it out. He's pouring you and I out. Why? Because we've said, yes, Lord, I am yours. I'm a living sacrifice. I'm available for you. Use me, pour me out however you wish. And God has a hold of the pitcher, and he's pouring you out. He's going to take you over here, pour you in as you use your spiritual gifting to minister to somebody. He's going to use you as a channel of grace over here to somebody else. That's God's purpose for your life, and that's what a living sacrifice does. Many people believe about a tradition and based on the historian Eusebius that indeed Paul did pour out to the last drop, and he was beheaded under Nero in 64 AD. Graphic language. Everybody Paul wrote to knew what it meant. So how do you live as a living sacrifice? Well, Paul answers that in verse 2. And we've talked about this in the last couple of weeks. He said, he's using two very big words. He said, don't be conformed but instead be transformed. Don't let the world change you from the outside in and just conform to what's around you, but let the Lord and the Holy Spirit transform you from the inside out. Let there be a metamorphosis take place. Cooperate with the Holy Spirit. That's what God says in this verse and in these words. And so with your renewed mind, let that start to live itself out in the transformed life, in the sanctifying grace that God keeps on dishing out to you because you and I need it so much to become more like his son, Jesus Christ. And where does God begin the work? Where does God start the work? Well, that leads us to our next point, and that is that in relation to self, God calls us to sober self-awareness. 
So in relation to God, we are living sacrifices, and he starts to transform us as we cooperate with him and and, and avail ourselves to him. And where does he start the work of sanctifying grace? Well, guess what? He starts with you, your attitude toward yourself. And so Paul says in verse 3 of this passage, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Don't be high-minded. Don't overthink yourself but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Paul begins, God begins with our our humility. He starts to chip away at our big egos, our pride, our our idolatrous self. And he he has to bring us down to a, a reasonable, accurate understanding of ourselves. Because you see, unless he does that, you're not a a living sacrifice available for his use to be poured out at his wish. And so in verse 3, Paul talks in relation to self, to have an accurate view of yourselves. Not to think too highly nor too lowly of yourself, but sober judgment, sober self-awareness. As we said last week, C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourselves, It's thinking about yourself less. (laughs) That's not a bad idea. D.L. Moody said, God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. Indeed, God can't use us until we humble ourselves and let him use us. It's very sad to see a person who's disqualified who's sidelined, not for lack of knowledge or skill or ability or charisma or personality, but it's very sad to see someone passed over by God because they're too smart for him, too proud, too competent in their own eyes to be useful to God and to be able to work with others. I've known people in my own life. I've seen people over the 40 years of ministry that I've been involved in. I've seen people who have incredible ability and yet inability to work with others because of the fact that they think so highly of themselves. They're not teachable. They're not humble. They're not able to be team players. They have what has some been, some, been called by some people a comparagance. That's the idea of comparing yourselves and, and arrogance, competing and arrogance put together. It's always this idea that I, I really have to be right. I really have to win. I really do know more than you in relationship. And of course, God has to begin the work of grace, of living sacrifices that are available to him now. He has to begin it in our hearts in humility because unless we begin there, we're not really going to have good relationships with others, and that's our next point, is that in relation to others, God wants us to actually minister to one another and be channels of his grace. And in verses 4 to 8, we have an incredible picture here of how the body of Christ looks, how the body of Christ is meant to be balanced and proportionate and muscle-toned and ready for service. And that's what I want to talk about now. And some of you probably have read this incredible book by Dr. Paul Brand and Philip Yancey called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. And I want to read a bit of an extended portion to you because it just describes as he studied molecular structure and cells in our human bodies. He came to such an incredible aha moment when he understood that this is what the body of Christ is meant to be like on earth. 
So just bear with me as we read. And uh, you can take a look at some incredible human cells while I'm doing so. He says, I am first struck by the variety. First of all, he says, chemically, my cells are almost all alike. But visually and functionally, they are as different as the animals in a zoo. I love that. So, so they're all alike in terms of chemical nature, but in terms of function, they're completely different. He says this, for example, red blood cells, discs resembling lifesaver candies voyaging through my blood filled with oxygen to feed the other cells. Muscle cells, which absorb so much of that nourishment, are sleek and supple and full colliding energy. He says that cartilage cells, or sorry, cartilage cells, shiny black nuclei, Looked like bunches of black-eyed peas glued together for strength. Fat cells seem lazy and laden like bulging white plastic garbage bags jammed together. Bone cells live in these rigid structures that exude strength, offering impliability and sturdiness. And in contrast, skin cells from an undulating patterns of softness, texture, rising and dipping, giving shape and beauty to our bodies. And the aristocrats of the cellular world are the sex cells and the nerve cells. A woman's contribution, the egg, is one of the largest cells in the human body. Its ovoid shape, just visible to the unaided eye, it seems fitting that all the other cells in the body should derive from this elegant and primordial structure. In great contrast to the egg's quiet repose, the male's tiny sperm cells are furiously flagellating tadpoles with distended heads and skinny tails, and they scramble for position as if competing aware, competitively aware that only one of billions will gain the honor of fertilization. I thought this was a great illustration for the baby dedication day. <laughs> and then the king of cells, the one I have devoted most of my life to studying, Dr. Paul Brand says, the nerve cell, he says. It has an aura of wisdom and complexity about it, spider-like. It branches out and unites the body with a computer system of dazzling sophistication. I never tire, he says, of viewing these varied specimens. Individually, they seem puny and oddly designed, but I know that these invisible parts cooperate to lavish me with the phenomena of life. Every second, my smooth muscle cells modulate the width of my blood vessels, gently pushing matter through my intestines, for example, opening and closing the plumbing in my kidneys, or when things are going well, my heart contracting rhythmically, my brain humming with knowledge, my lymph having tired, laving, uh, leaving tired, not, no longer tired. I rarely give these cells a passing thought, though, he says. And then he says this, but I believe these cells in my body can also teach me about the larger organisms, families, groups, communities, villages, nations, and especially about one specific community of people that is likened to a body more than 30 times in the New Testament. I speak of the body of Christ, that network of people scattered across the planet who have little in common other than membership in the group that follows Jesus Christ. <laughs> what an incredible illustration in his life work studying cells. 
and understanding how the body of Christ is meant to fit together. Let's talk about how it is that we are meant to fit together so that we build one another up and not tear each other down, that we don't compete, but we complement. And I'd like to talk, first of all, about the source of our ministry to one another, the Spirit of God and the grace of God. Paul says in verse 4 of Romans 12, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace that is given us. The source of your spiritual gifting that is able to minister the grace of God to other people is the grace of God himself. We always remember that we are just one part of the incredible body of Christ. Every person who ever comes to faith has a spiritual gift when he, is, he or she is filled with the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of God brings a gift. Let me just say a few very essential lessons. There's so much confusion around the subject of charismata, the word used for gifts of grace, spiritual giftings. First of all, every Christian has a spiritual gift. Paul says in Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Each one, every believer the, the youngest infant Christian. Then, secondly, I want to say that the list that we have in the Scriptures, there's four particularly, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, 1 Peter 4, Ephesians 4. These are not exhaustive lists. The Holy Spirit did not give us an exhaustive list of giftings. He is so much bigger and more unique and so much more complex in using us humans to fill us and grace us to minister to one another. Thirdly, I want to say that we must not think of spiritual gifts like some zodiac sign. Well, I'm a cancer, I'm a whatever. No, no, no. These are incredibly um, flexible ways that God wants to equip you to minister his grace. We cannot pigeonhole him. He is far more creative, far more personally involved, far more expressing the gift of each individual in a unique fashion. Two people with the same gift of leadership look so different in the way they extend that leadership. Two people with the same gift of administration administer differently because God the Spirit in, 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 includes that. He intends incarnation of the Spirit to come out in different ways. And then next I want to say that the most important lesson of this is that it's all from the grace of God. The source of your spiritual gifting is the grace of God. He's the architect. He's the source. He made you the way you are, and you have the responsibility of cooperating with him. Then Paul talks about the shape of ministry that you should have because of your spiritual gifting. Again, we look at verse 4. As in one body we have many members, and the members not all have the same function... That word function is the word praxis. And that word praxis means as practice as distinguished from theory, the application or the use as of knowledge or skill. So in other words, the function of the spiritual gift that God has given you by his grace is best understood in what it actually does. Not a theory about it, not a knowledge about it, but how indeed the Lord is using you. And, um, of course, we all know in, in, in education circles that 
Many, many years ago, there was lots of theory, and people realized that we had to get the theory out of the classroom because they were graduating students that didn't know how to do whatever they were called to do on the field. And so they began to implement the theory and practice together. We have a group of people in our church, call them the facility team or whatever you want to call them, and uh, yesterday, again, they had a safety meeting, safety meeting, and... Uh, <clears throat> It's mostly about donuts and coffee, I think. And they talk theory a little bit, but you know, honestly, these guys do. They're praxis-oriented. These guys do the job of shoveling the snow and of changing the filters on the roof. There's, I don't know how many dozen filters. And they, they, they help uh, fix and repair things, and they make sure the vents are clean on the roof. And, and they do all these things. Now, if they just got together for those safety meetings and talked theory, we'd all be disappointed and in trouble. But they actually do the work, the function of the body of Christ and the guys that are gifted with these things we're very indebted to. And so Paul is talking and teaching that not all of us have the same function or practice. And the outworking of God's grace is going to look differently in each one of us. The nominating committee that met yesterday has a certain function and they're very much in tune with this teaching because they understand that God has gifted this church with different giftings in different people. And so they choose people based on what the, the need or the job requires. You need to re realize this as well. Just because an opportunity comes up doesn't mean you should fill that opportunity because you might be taking it away from somebody else, and that's exactly in the zone of God's anointing and gifting upon them. You should pray, God, how is it that you want me to express your grace to build up the body in this church? Because God wants you to be using your spiritual gift, not, not misusing it somewhere you shouldn't, nor keeping it all locked up in disrepair. I'm so grateful for the variety of gifts that I see in this church family. And it's scattered over the years. In the last 12 years, I've learned. I've learned what my giftings are more, more sharply, and I've learned what my giftings are not more sharply. And I have learned to humble myself and turn to others in the church family and say, you, you do that better. Could you help me with that? Or you do that better. Could, could you do that instead of me? or one of the leadership and in, in pastors and so on. And again, all of this is for the sake of the building up of the body of Christ. But if we don't humble ourselves, the church does not get the best from all of us. And so that's the shape of God's ministry. And then I, I want to mention the sign of ministry. The sign, what I mean by that is that the sign that this is really authentic, spiritually gifted ministry happening through you, an individual. Um, that's is what I, I want to say that how do we determine if this is an authentic spiritual gifting that is used as a channel of grace to other people? Because in these verses, in verses 6 to 8, Paul mentions seven spiritual gifts. And the question that he's, at, he's saying is, he's teaching how it is that we observe their authenticity and their usefulness. And the, the way he really describes it is, is kind of like that old saying, the proof is in the pudding. 
And that, that is not P-U-T-T-I-N-G, it's in the P-U-D-D-I-N-G. According to the way I understand it is that, that the proof is in the pudding means that you need to taste the pudding to know how genuine it is, how well it's made. And this is what Paul is saying, that the proof of the authenticity of the gifting that you're given is seen in how it is used and worked out and how it influences others. So let's take a look at that. Let's see what Paul means. In the gift of prophecy or preaching, for example, Paul says that it's in proportion to our faith. The idea is that, again, according to our faith, we looked at verse 3, and we decided then that the standard of faith that we're measured by is Jesus Christ himself, And so similarly, if we take the same approach to this verse, then we're saying that the preaching, the prophecy gifting, is in proportion to to our faith. The standard of faith that we have is in Jesus Christ. You can't preach beyond your intimacy and your faith in Jesus Christ. You can't take people where you've never been. And so preaching has to be in conformity to, and the fruit of preaching will be in result of the intimacy of the preacher with Jesus Christ, the filling of the spirit of the preacher in Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to serving. How is serving authenticated? Well, it's in our serving. The word is diakonia, the same word for deacon. How does a deacon or a person who is a servant in the church show the authenticity being a channel of grace through the spiritual gifting of service. Well, it's shown in the serving. What does that mean? It means, do they, are they selfless in their serving? Do they complain about having to spend time on other people? Do they jockey for the easiest positions? How do we serve one another as a channel of grace? And then we look at the gift of teaching somewhat distinct from prophecy or preaching in that teaching is the systematic instruction of the Word of God. Well, the proof is in the teaching. Is it accurate? Is it, is it sound? Is it, is it landing in the hearts of people? Is it transforming? And the exhortation gift, this idea of parakaleo, the idea of coming alongside someone to encourage them. Well, the fruit of that, if it's of God, if, it's, if you're a channel of grace, is, is it encouraging someone? The gift of giving, the proof. It says, in giving, let it be with generosity. The word could also be translated gladness. Can you imagine someone comes to you and they give you something, but it's done with a begrudging attitude? (laughs) Just keep it. No, let the authenticity of grace giving be with generosity and gladness. Paul says, next, with leadership in our zeal, in our diligence. Nobody in leadership having to be called up and said, are you not coming to the meeting? Hey, did you fulfill that responsibility? No, no, we got diligent leaders because they're zealous to lead the flock. And then finally, this gift of mercy. Wow, again, like giving. If it's not done with cheerfulness, an act of mercy, how, how it betrays the source, which is the grace of God. And so in each of these gifts, the sign that this ministry is from God, the Spirit, and that we are being channels of God's grace is actually in the ministry output, in the impact of this ministry, in the results of this ministry. The proof 
is in the pudding. The proof is in the pudding. Now, now some of you might be wondering why I brought my lunch today. It's because I think I'm you know, really preaching long, and I no, it's not because of that. The, the reason I brought this is because um, it is actually, this was actually a gift at Christmas for me, okay? And uh, Pat bought me this gift for Christmas. I think she figured I'd start making my own lunches and stuff like that, but it, she brought me this gift, and it's my lunchbox, and I bring it to, to the office. But, but what would happen if I left it at home? Wouldn't, the gift wouldn't help me much at lunchtime. Or, or what it would happen if I brought it to the office, but I never opened it? I wouldn't be eating lunch. Or what would happen if I brought it to the office and I opened it, but I ate all of the food myself and didn't share it with any of the staff, which is usually what happens. <laughs> they don't share with me either. But today, I actually brought some cookies. And I brought my wife's shortbread cookies, which are really delicious. And my mom, who's here today, her date cookies are incredible. I only have about a dozen, so I can't feed all of you. The point I'm making is, you have a spiritual gift as well. God has, by his grace, saved you and given you some way of ministering out of the overflow of his abundant grace in your life in specific ways. Do you know what your gifting is? Have you taken it out? Have you taken it with you wherever you go? Have you opened it up? Are you using it? And are you sharing it? May God help us to do that in the coming year. Amen. Oh, Father, would you answer that prayer for your church today? Lord, you have promised that the good work that you began in us, you will carry on into completion. And we just say thank you. And we ask you, Lord, to continually draw our hearts to you, to continually put our trust in you, to continually think about you in everything so that we can abide with you. And because of that, we can be the fragrance of Christ wherever we go. Thank you for the great, great privilege of being your children, of being a family. And Lord, would you allow the love that we have received from you to pour out from us to those around us so that they may want to know you. We ask these things for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a wonderful Sunday.